Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And we're the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. I just are United Methodist clergy women from upstate New York. And we're finding a different way to do spirituality. And we're live. All right. We are the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. And today we are joined by my across the street neighbor, the Rabbi Matt Cutler from the Congregation Gates of Heaven. So welcome, Matt. Thank you. Yes, and thank you so much for being here. it's it's been especially meaningful that you said yes to this invitation that our friend jeremiah who also serves locally said yes to this invitation because it's uh, it's been impor- an important part of the calling that led to this podcast to have an interfaith perspective and interfaith dialogues right now the state is the world is in such a state of chaos and brokenness and all kinds of other badness that we we really need to talk to each other and we need to we need to find our common love and our common humanity so thank you my honor and uh it it, you know one of the things that have been very important to us in our in our community and thank you for being a part of it now natalie yeah is is we created this thing called schenectady clergy against hate which really is designed as a nonpartisan, multi-faith um, religious organization or gathering mm-hmm. to, to support each other and, and to give clergy our own voice, independent of our, our, our houses of worship, but to be there for each other, as, as you have described in this time of brokenness, really to come together and say, we can do something called tikkun olam in Hebrew, which means repair the world. We can bring things together. We can we can call things out. We can label it, and we can really also plan on building bridges of unison. Totally, totally. And I've gotten to uh, celebrate that specific organization, the Schenectady Clergy Against Hate, with uh, a couple of the people that I've interviewed so far, because boy has that been a a a wonderful well to draw from for you know voices for voices to lift up in this podcast um me and grace were just celebrating it when we did her interview last week and one of the things that she and i brought up that i i continue to deeply deeply appreciate about ska is that it's truly an interfaith organization and christians are not always good at understanding the importance of interfaith dialogue and knowing what an interfaith conversation looks like. We are so used to our majority status in the United States and in a lot of places around the world that it just doesn't even occur to us who isn't at the table. And in basically every church I served before this one, and this is church number six, 
So basically every church I've served before this one, we've had some kind of organization that that uh, goes by a similar name, but doesn't work the same as SCA, some kind of uh, community interfaith organization. Uh, but in most of those organizations, they do wonderful work, but what they've meant by interfaith is, well, okay, we, we got the, the Methodist ministers here, uh, the Presbyterian minister from down the street, they're here, uh, there's a Baptist minister here, there's an Episcopalian here, there's even a Roman Catholic person here, my goodness, I mean, some of us say debts and some of us say trespasses, I mean, look at all the differences we have to put aside in order to tolerate one another, and that's ecumenical, ecumenical conversations are extremely important among clergy there all kinds of good things come from that um but that's not interfaith and there are so many voices that aren't at that table that it, where do you even start but especially at such a time as this you know well we we have we actually had a tipping point and that was the 2016 election mm. uh, that mm -hmm. in the days that were that followed um there was an increase of fear. Our Sikh brothers and sisters down the street really were, were, were being labeled as something that they, because they looked different, they were being, you know, and, and, and Muslim community members were very scared to, to go out and uh, in, the, in the world because of a fear of being harassed and bothered. And we started to see symbols on in places that kind of almost was a foreshadowing of where we are now of swastikas and things like that. And we decided, we, meaning the, the local, um, the local, uh, one of the local imams and myself decided to to really pull a clergy together and see what we can do about it. And here we are six years later and going strong because of the foundation that was created back then. Totally. So. And such an important one. Yeah. So Matt, one of the first questions that we've asked everybody that we've interviewed is tell us as much as you'd like to about your spiritual journey. So I love, first of all, thank you for, for the invitation to be upon this and thank you for giving me the heads up because it really gave me um, the opportunity to do some, you know, thinking about what is my spiritual journey. Um, I was very comfortable in a synagogue setting growing up, in a liberal synagogue setting. Um, my parents, you know, were active in the synagogue, you know, my mom was president of the sisterhood, my dad was on the temple board. Um, they sent me to Jewish summer camp, you know, and, um, but really what got me was when my dad got sick. So from around the time I was 12 and my dad died right before my 19th birthday, uh, my dad really was having challenges with his diabetes and he was in and out of hospitals, losing limbs, you know, going blind, having neuropathy mm -hmm. and retinopathy and all sorts of every problem out there. And as I was trying to grope, where like literally like Jacob wrestle with, with why my father, who I always saw as a really good guy, had to suffer and the suffering was real and painful. Um, that's what brought me into meeting 
young rabbis or rabbinic students and cantorial students who basically were able to talk about Judaism in my own terms. And I'll never forget the first time I admitted to somebody that I wanted to be a rabbi. It was really actually in a very weird place. It was in Spanish class in 11th grade. We were studying about the Inquisition and Dr. Garcia said, as I'm explaining the, 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 uh, you know, the, the, the challenges of you know, being Jewish. And she said, have you thought about being a rabbi? And I went, yeah, I have. And that's what I want to <laughs> be. And, and she looked at me and the other classmates looked at me and they're like, really? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, no one has ever asked that before, but it, the minute she asked it, it, it just clicked. Um, and for me then it became this incredible tool of faith and faithfulness um, in order to deal with the ebbs and flows of life, the joys and the, the challenges of being alive. That's lovely. Thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to share that story. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we have found with, with everyone that we have talked to that it, it, there's a lot of value just in sharing our spiritual journeys with one another. And especially as people that are in the clergy, we've been asked a version of that question many, many times before, but always by somebody who kind of wants a quick answer and is asking in like an interview setting or maybe as a parishioner that you're just meeting for the first time who isn't going to listen to the 10 or 15 minute explanation that you might give of all the different places you and the divine have gone together. So we've gotten really used to like coming up with a call story and then getting it down to an elevator pitch. Oh yeah, my and, elevator you know, pitch was, yeah. My elevator yeah. pitch is very simple. It was basically in high school, you know, youth group and, yep. and was, was really turned me on to Judaism. Boom. End of story. But yep. you know, the door just opened you're out. Yep. Yeah. And, but you know, for me, it was, it, the spiritual journey was a door that opened that I kept work walking through. So in, in, in our liturgy on Yom Kippur and the uh, Day of Atonement at the end, they, they talk about all these sharim, all these gates, gates of justice, gates of compassion. And, and what I realize as I'm reading through these is that my spiritual journey has me passing through numerous gates on a regular basis, um, day in and day out, ever since I realized that this was that Jewishness was a part of my life my and my identity as a Jew was so important. And, and it keeps changing um, and evolving and, and mutating in, in different ways based on where I am. And I'm sure the same is true for you. Totally. Mm -hmm. You, say, yeah, you 100%. said the thing about the gates and actually this past Sunday and it's the, it was the second Sunday of Advent, we sing this hymn and the the liturgy or the uh, lyrics are lift up your heads, you mighty gates. So that's mm -hmm. exactly what I was just thinking of. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it's funny. And one of the things that I learned, uh, okay, so part of my spiritual journey in the last three years. So I went on sabbatical 10 years ago and I'm supposed to get another one. And the, temple, the synagogue leadership is like, look, uh, it's kind of hard as a single practitioner. And there's really not much, you know, I don't have the colleague support or, you know, guys around us to, to, so 
I chose to do instead a, it was supposed to be an 18 month program, which because then COVID hit and turned into a three year program through, through the Institute of Jewish Spirituality. Oh my God, this was the greatest thing I ever did. And because what it did was the focus was designed for professional Jews, rabbis, cantors, really to start um, studying Judaism in a different light. You know, we, I came from an academic institution and seminary that was very, you know, rationally thinking and, you know, and this was introduced me to neo-Hasidic thoughts. Mm. And one of the things that we read was that when you cross through one of the gates, the anticipation of reaching the gate and crossing through it um, is what you get. And the minute you cross through it, you start yearning for the next gate. And I went, wait a minute, can I enjoy it? And they're like, no, the anticipation and stepping onto it is there. And then it's a memory and it's, it's etched in the soul. And when you walk through it, the next one is really driving you forward. And for me, a spiritual journey in that regard is, you know, looking back at these spiritual moments and trying to define them, I can't do them justice. But the anticipatory notion and reaching that 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 summit or that entry point was such is such a beautiful thing. And then when it's stepped through it, it's then then a memory that I can call on, but then I need to keep growing for the next one. Does that make any sense at all? Oh, it yes. totally does. Yes, it does. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense, especially because as you might know, just from, from having worked with, you know, having worked with us and being the, the very intelligent person that you are in any way, um, like it, the United Methodist ordination process is not, um, you know, one, two, three, go to school, snap your fingers and you're ordained. Um, there are many steps and many. Yeah, many I noticed things. that. <laughs> yeah. I, I spent 14 years walking through one gate and then the next and then the next. And Jess has a, a has an equally, you know, the timeline is different, but a, a, a story that is equally filled with gates. Mm -hmm. And sometimes yeah. you, know, you get sent back to a different gate mm -hmm. and you gotta go through it again. <laughs> Mm -hmm. But I'm going to give you a slightly different, another notion. There, there's this concept in, 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 in mystical Judaism, in Kabbalah. It's called Katnut and, and Godlut. Follow this one, all right? Um, Katnut is the introspection and when you get so absorbed with the self, right? When you really, you know, it's really hard to let God in when you're in a period of, of Katnut because you're, you know, you're, you're like, you're, you're obsessed with, uh, all these moments, but you also know that a moment of Katnut can open up great spirituality of God Lut, where, where there's a wide expense. You lost a loved one. Your marriage didn't work out. You, you, the job fell apart. All these things are that that's a moment of Katnut that can lead to God Lut. But what the Hasidic, what the Kabbalists will also say is, it's also a moment of Katnut when things are going really well. Hey, everything is going great in my life. I don't need God. You know, the, the the paycheck is clearing. I'm healthy. The kids are fine. The mortgage is paid up. Everything is going well. What, what's the problem? I don't, you know, and, you know, that's a moment that you start looking at it. A friend of mine is um, is uh, a CEO, uh, uh, is a chairman of the board of Northeast Grocers, uh, which is basically the price shopper. To, 
uh, Price Chopper uh, organization in Topps Grocery. And he had a thing where at the board meeting, the numbers look good. I mean, the, the, the fusion of these two companies, it's going great. And he said, all right, I want us to go ahead now three years and say to yourself, what do I know three years now that I wish I knew three years ago that we'd started wrestling with? And he goes, that's a moment of God Newt going to God Newt, of the notion of where am I, you know, everything's fine now or everything's, I'm struggling now, but I need to find this greater expanse. I got to keep going. I got to move to the next gate. And that's a really important tool for us um, is, is to be able to constantly appreciate where we are and also where we're going in order to look back and say, how are we going to get there? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I, I would have to imagine that in synagogue culture, this element exists, but I don't know if it exists in the same way as it exists in Christian churches, where our our focus so often is on everybody doing everything they can to hold the last gate open because we have to keep the doors of this facility open. That is our goal. We have to keep enough money in the offering plate to make ends meet on the operating budget. And we have to white knuckle hold on to the members that we have. So we're, we're all just going to focus on finding all the door stoppers we can to just hold that one gate open. We're not looking at previous gates. We're not looking at next gates. And we're, we've, we've stagnated all of the growth we can ever have because gosh darn it, it you know, it, change requires loss and we don't want to lose anything, you know? Yeah, it, it's funny because we approach it slightly different, but we do, I know exactly what it is. And what we do is like the president of our synagogue and the executive vice president of the synagogue, who's going to be the president elect, one of them has to have financials and the other one has to be a program person. Mm. All right. So that, you know, when they sit at the table together uh, and they, and the, the finance guy says, look, we got to cut back on our programming because, and all these create creative things, because we need the money to, to keep the lights on. I, you know, the program person goes, wait a minute, that's our mission. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And they need to, we need that, that those, those two angels on the shoulders to, to, to dialogue and to push us forward. And the other side is sometimes we dream big, you know, let's do this. Let's do all these incredible things. Let's, and we're like, um, yes, but where, where are we going to get the, the people power and, and the money to do so? All right, Jessica, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to walk on your no, line. That's okay. No I just worries. don't want to, I'm, I'm trying to use my hand so that I don't interrupt people while they're talking. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so, it, and it's funny because like Natalie, what you said, we're trying to hold the last gate open. And I'm like, oh, honey, we're trying to hold open gates that should have been closed 50 years ago. I mean, really, <laughs> this is a huge problem with a lot of, I would say Christian and particularly Protestant denominations in our country, we we're trying to hold open a lot of gates that really should have been closed a long time ago, but mm -hmm. so there was, really here nor there. <laughs> I got a great yeah. story for you. 
so when I, I before I came to Schenectady, I was a, an associate rabbi in Boston area in Newton, Massachusetts, and there was this Methodist church on Walnut Street in Newton, where the minister was retiring after um, decades, decades. I mean, he's the old-fashioned um, Methodist minister that you know wore a bow tie, had a cape, you know, and uh, he just looked like he came out of 1875, you know, and, and and it was great. And his farewell charge to his congregation was brilliant. Um, Jesus's last words on the cross were said with the same number of words and the same intonation of we've never done it that way before right <laughs> you know oh lord why have you forsaken me oh mm -hmm. you know why we've never done it that way before it, it you know it, it, it's love i love when they you know i've been here 28 years my predecessor retired after 11 years before that was a rabbi who was here for 25 years and people will go back in and when rabbi Senes was here i'm like you realize you're going back now 30 some odd years now you know things have changed things have evolved it ain't the, the old time religion anymore and you know it's you know mm -hmm. yeah I, I get it it's it's a, and it's a challenge because um there when i was in college i had a professor he said we need to be in constant dialogue about what we keep and what we leave behind because otherwise we just get stuck in these really bad patterns. And I feel like it's one of the wiser things that he said. And that, that like long after I've forgotten lots of other things that like professors and pastors have said to me, that's one of the things that sticks with me. We have to be in dialogue with each other about what we keep and what we leave behind. Yeah, I had a yes, professor who had a great line that said, would say, no one likes change except a wet baby, you know, so yeah. sometimes, <laughs> <That's it's, true. laughs> you know, it's, it's like, so you need to be able to put these things forward in order to move us ahead. Um, you know, it's, I don't know about your seminary experience, but, you know, no one talked to organizational business. Nobody talked about, you know, fast, um, uh, force field analysis of like, you know, nope, 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 we're not doing that. And, you know, you know, the creative tension between where you want to be and where you are as a catalyst to move you forward. No one ever taught that. Um, you know, and I'll never forget when I came to this congregation um, and I'm at my first board meeting and they hand me the budget, a spreadsheet, and I'm looking at it and they're like, Rabbi, do you want to make a comment on it? And I'm like, it's in it's it, it's it's in Latin. It's it's Greek. It's 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 you know. It's like I know all this Bible stuff and all this Jewish law stuff and all this ritual and philosophy stuff. You know, practical rabbinics never said, "Let me read a budget." <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, we definitely had that problem, and we both went to Colgate Rochester Crozier Divinity School out in Rochester. And yes, we definitely have that issue. And. Oh, Although Gail Rashudi yeah. did try to teach, you know, she had classes on church administration. Yes, so, so they were bless, the gap. bless her heart, Gail. If you are listening to this, we thank you. Yes, but <laughs> yes, Bye. but Bye. yeah, no, it, it, it we that was absolutely not our focus uh, to the point where it's um, uh, 
it's one of the things that uh, smacks you in the face the hardest when you graduate, at least on the Protestant end of things, when you graduate from seminary and then walk into actual congregational life is, you know, having your just all the wind in your sails thinking, or at least, you know, some of it has been let out by the three years it took to get through seminary and more so for some of us, but um you know, but you're so puffed up by, you know, oh, well, I, you know, I have all of this knowledge of the Bible now, and I, I have very deep thoughts about what a good sermon should look like, and, you know, and, and about the mission of, of a good church, and about what Jesus wants us to be in the world, and some of our parishioners are, you know, not, not super troubled by any of that. The, the first thing that you get handed is like, you know, a, a proposal for a building project and a plunger because the toilet's clogged, you know, and you, you just, you busy yourself up with that stuff so much that, you know, you forget that you took a year of Hebrew, you know? <laughs> right. You know, and it's funny. It's like, I'll never forget the first time I had to terminate fire an employee and I had no idea how to do it. And I'll never forget these words came out of my mouth. You are fired. Now as a rabbi, let me help you through it. And they were like, mm. no, 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 you're not my rabbi right now. You're my employer. Oh. <laughs> I was like, I'm really, you know, so, but these are challenges. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> yeah. No. Oh. Right. Well, thank you. I've never had to let go of a staff person. I'm going to have to remember that line and put that in my pocket if I ever end up in that position. Yeah. I hope you never have to be in that position. I have then mm -hmm. since moved away to saying we have an, you know, somebody else whose job it is. Yeah. Um, so I can be the round to say, let me help you through it. This, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because that's what I do. I mean, you know, as clergy, we, we have this ecclesiastical understanding of the pastoral role. And mm -hmm. it's not necessarily in the administrative side of the equation. Mm -hmm. Totally. It's you know, we're the chief. We're the chief spiritual officer, not the chief executive officer. Good point. And in the Protestant Church, a lot of times they force the pastor to be the chief executive officer. But I think one mm -hmm. of the things that if you have a good, if you have a good congregation in the Methodist Church, your trustees and your church council people and your laity are the ones that are really taking on that role, so the pastor doesn't have to shoulder that activity. But Mm -hmm. It doesn't always happen. All right. I got to ask this question then, because one of the challenges I have with your denomination, I'm the guy across the street for the last 28 years. All right. Yeah. You guys keep changing on me. Yes, we do. Right. How, how come you can't be there forever? What's the rationale that you have to move on every seven or eight years? Oh, I, I, man, I hope someday I get to stay in a church for seven or eight years. I haven't yet. Um, so you're tugging to, on my heartstrings. Yeah. So actually I'm a deacon, so I don't itinerate the way that the elders do. Yeah. Um, but it goes so back is, to John Wesley's um, mm -hmm. practices, the circuit riding pastors and how some of them would come and they would teach and preach for a while and then they would move on and I think it was to kind of keep an influx of like fresh mm -hmm. blood but sometimes yeah, totally. it can be detrimental to a church I think it, there's there's benefits and drawbacks to the system and it's mm -hmm. 
I would say, Natalie, you know this way better than I do. Huge pressure on families. Yes. So, um, so like Jess said, the history of it comes from John Wesley uh, putting together a system whereby he would have lots of preachers who were available for service and then lots of churches. And you could keep popping up churches everywhere. Um, and this is going into it, Wesley, after one failed attempt of doing ministry in Georgia, uh, decided not to come back to America. <laughs> it was pretty Matt, bad. Have you ever, have you ever had the misfortune of hearing the story? No, okay, so yeah, Wesley did a, a mission in, uh, in the colony of Georgia. And during the time that he was there, it, it was just awful. The, the local people hated him. He got dumped by his girlfriend. Um, and then it, her name was Sophia Hopke, and she is an infamous character among United Methodists. And then he refused to serve her communion after they broke up. And that went over even worse. And after that, he came back to England, a broken man, and said, man, never again. I'm not going back to America. So after that, he started sending other people to America because uh, because the Americas were expanding quickly by the end of his life. And then after he died, uh, going into the 1800s was a time of very rapid expansion. And Thomas Koch and Francis Asbury really headed that up. Um, and so sent people out on literal horses to just plant a church wherever you could put them. Um, so an itinerant system meant you could show up to a town on your horse and say, okay, let's start a church here because I see 10 people standing around with nothing to do and then move on. You wouldn't have to stay there forever. You could put together a system, use your particular gifts and graces to get them off the ground and then train up another lay preacher who could take over for you after you moved on to the next town with your horse. But this was at a time when the country was rapidly expanding and not in a situation where things are pretty much settled and not changing at such a rapid rate. It was at a time when um, we had horses. So that's very different. It was at a time when everyone walked to church or rode a horse. So it, we didn't have a situation where you could get in your car and drive 30 miles if you wanted to, to the church that fits your family best. And so now we have, you know, we have issues as Methodists where we've got several churches all within a few blocks of each other that are all Methodist and there aren't enough Methodists in the neighborhood to support that. Right here in Schenectady, we've got that, that Sarah Barron is just a couple blocks away at Schenectady first. And Doug Mackey is just down the street at uh, Faith UMC. You know, so we have issues like that that we, we kind of contend with and how do we all work together? And then the biggest thing that just started to touch on is that those circuit preachers all back in the day who were so comfortable moving around all of the time were all men, all unmarried men, and none of them had kids. So yeah, nowadays we've got a system where this is my third year here at Eastern Parkway. I lift up my prayers of Thanksgiving daily that I'm seeing a third year in this church. And I hope to see as many as God wants for me. But whenever somebody asks me how long I'm going to be here, I say, I don't know. 
I'm not even really allowed to say how long I'd like to stay because it's entirely not up to me. I'm only put here one year at a time. And then I find out in the spring if there's going to be another year. It's almost like, you know, like a TV show. And we're waiting to find out if we're going to get picked up for another season. Um, and the kind of silly but relevant image that I've used several times is I'm like Mary Poppins. I'm coming in here at the beginning of the movie. The parents are kind of ignoring the kids. So there's some conflict in the family and the, and, and everything's kind of messed up. And I'm showing up with my umbrella and I'm going to teach the kids some songs to sing to each other. And I'm going to get, you know, the family back together. I'm going to, you know, get the dad to quit having this weird relationship with the bank. And I'm going to get the mom to maybe go to a couple less protest marches and spend more time with her kids and you know but then as soon as the winds change I'm going to put up my talking umbrella again and I'm going to fly away to the next town that needs me and you guys hopefully at that point will skip together and sing about how you're flying a kite <laughs> now I have not exactly seen that happen but that's the idea but now we have a system where we're so used to moving that our point of cabinet really gets move happy and moves people kind of before they should be moved or sometimes goes in the opposite direction and keeps somebody in one place just a wee little bit too long. And sometimes that can cause a lot of problems too in a system where we move all the time. So yeah, no, it's complicated because I, I do have, me and just have colleagues that have stayed in their churches for, you know, 20 or 30 years, we can yes. name them. But then, because our system is not used to that, once that person has retired, or moved on, the next person who comes in has had a heck of a job trying, yeah. trying to, to fill those shoes. And mm -hmm. I've had colleagues who have literally held up their shoes on their last day and said, I'm taking these with me. So the next guy isn't going to be filling my shoes. But, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, it's complicated, man. I, I hope I get to stay in one place for eight years someday. Well, it's interesting because for me, I, first of all, I don't do change well. Just, just ask my children, ask my wife, you know, um, you know, when we left Boston, I said five to seven years, we'll be here. And then I fell in love with this place. And here it is, you know, 28 years. And, you know, I signed a long-term contract a couple of years ago um, that will expire, you know, when I'm ready to retire. Um, the, 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 the notion is, you know, I'm here at the point where I I'm, I've named, welcomed children into the world, named them, and now I'm, I'm marrying them and watching them give, you know, they're, they're, I have become, I'm steadfast. I'm, I'm a foundational rock because mm -hmm. of my presence. Um, the challenge has been that the institution has lost its institutional presence as what are we, but really is defined more from the, 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 the stability of the rabbinate and the personal strengths and weaknesses or the charisma of the, of, of the clergy. Um, and you don't always see that in, in congregations like ours. Like if you look at our my, a sister congregation in down the block in, uh, in Schenectady, Agadar Khim, 
they have changed rabbis every 10 years, um, mm -hmm. usually and not easily. Um, you know, it's yeah. usually they, 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 there's a tipping point of, you know, something that says we have to go our separate ways. Um, mm -hmm. and, and this is a challenge. Look, I try, one of the things I pledged to my wife when we got married and I was in my fifth year of rabbinic student was that I was going to put family first. Yeah, like I did a lousy job at that. Okay, I will confess that. Um, I, I, you know, but I gave them as best of stability as I could that they could grow up um, with roots and, and friendships and, you know, dealing with the, the, the quirks of being a, a, an RK or uh, being a rabbi's kid in a small town. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and when we sent them to Jewish summer camp, you know, they were delighted to meet other, you know, RKs who were like, you know, oh yeah, yeah, your dad has to always be on the phone. And there were some great tricks that they came home with from camp that I was like, oh, this is great. My favorite one was, Remember when you used to have a landline, you know, uh, and uh, so this one rabbi basically put pretzels next to the phone and from five to seven, the, the was family time. So when the phone rang, the kids would answer, but they had to put a pretzel in their mouth. Oh yeah, the rabbi's home, but he's eating dinner now. He'll call you later. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. I love it. Oh, I love it. So, Matt, I I looked forward to being able to have this conversation because it's an important one to have at such a time as this. And we're recording this in December. We're we're going to put this then in the podcast lineup after we launch. But you know the 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 things I'm thinking in my head are going to unfortunately be obsolete by the time that this actually airs. But we live in a state of the world right now that is incredibly hateful, and we're facing a, a, a steep amount of anti-Semitism in everywhere, in our local communities with hate symbols and things like that popping up, in the media with a certain rapper putting his foot in his mouth on a daily basis. Yeah. And, it, you know, and like, I can't keep up with the amount of hate speech that's out there. So what can we, as people who are in more of a like majority religious position, what can we do to help you guys in this in a state where the, the world is collapsing under this anti-Semitic pressure? Okay, first of all, let me approach this with first gratitude to you guys for, do, for, for raising this. And also that your facial gestures and your, 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 your angst about this <laughs> is so reassuring. You see, I'm not alone. And anti-Semitism has been around for a really, really long time. It raises its ugly head with a fervent pitch every now and then. Um, unfortunately, it's more common than you can realize. Um, there's some incredible podcasts right now. Rachel Maddow does one on, on uh, called Ultra. Uh, Ken Burns did one on U.S. and the uh, and the Holocaust. 
as a um, uh, as a documentary. And what he showed, what they both showed, was this like theme and variation of American political scene that really has given rise to um, the voices of anti-Semitism that have always been there. My kids, unfortunately, who are in their late twenties, um, have have been have been victims at times of, of anti-Semitism. I have been a victim of anti-Semitism. My wife has been one as, a, as children. This is not new for us. What is new is the response of the world that I am, that I'm able to call on colleagues and friends with the notion of that, that, that it's not for me, you know, it, that, that I'm not alone. You know, there's that old, during the Holocaust, during World War II, there was um, a poem, I forget the author, who says, when they went for the Jews, I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. And it goes on and on and says, at the end, when they came for me, there was no one left. Um, and, and, and we've learned a lot from that poem, that we have to stand together. You know, when we were dealing with the tensions in the black lives uh, in our community, we stood with our uh, people of color and we realized how important it is that we show solidarity and we listen and we add our voice in, in, in support and willing to pull back and make room for another. Those were great moments in our community that now the tables are spinning in a way that now I'm the guy who needs that type of model. The mm -hmm. fact that I have colleagues and friends that stand with me, who give solidarity, who, who give space for me to voice my anxiety and give support and then pledge mm -hmm. to help eradicate that type of behavior that is hurting, um, is important. That's one. Mm -hmm. Two, mm -hmm. The nature of the political climate is such that we have to realize that on our American political spectrum, and this is Jonathan Greenblatt who wrote about this, who's the head of the ADL, that they come from both sides of the political spectrum. We hear about it from the right side of the political spectrum because it's loud, it's violent, it's like a tsunami. All right, it is. It comes in there with Jews will not replace us, you know, carrying banners in Charlottesville, uh, torches in Charlottesville. We see it as, with uh, militants in hate speech. Um, you know, we hear it with Nick Fuentes, who, you know, who had a seat at the table with a former president. I knew who he was. You know, he was an active part of the Republican Party, you know, in, in it. So we hear from the right. But don't misunderstand that we do hear from the left. But it's there on the left, Jonathan Greenberg says, it's kind of like climate change. It, it's subtle. It comes out there in a different way that is more gradual. And then all of a sudden you go, oh, how did we get to where we are? And that's the tensions that we have to address. Look. Um, we have to deal with um, the, the tensions with the Black Jewish community because, you know, where some of this is coming from. And we have to acknowledge the socioeconomic strife that is there that, and have to have dialogue and be able to address it. And that's something that we're working on. Um, that's an important part of this. 
Um, so we have to address it on both ends of the spectrum, political spectrum, because hatred knows there. And, and part of it on the left is about Israel. And, you know, and that's a very complex issue. Um, mm -hmm. So anti-Semitism takes, takes, you know, is, is not only just, you know, we hate Jews, but also a question of how do we respond to when we disagree on how you live your life in certain areas? Um, where do we dialogue and where do we make room for another? Mm -hmm. And the time to deal with that latter part is, is, is when things are good, is to bring things together, to have this partnership. Look, you know, Schenectady clergy, I can make, because of my respect for, for my colleagues and they, they understand me, that when we get into these difficult conversations, whether it's about Israel, whether it's about reproductive rights, we understand um, that it's not personal. It is, it is more conceptual as well as it is affecting lives. Where's the middle ground? Where can we partner and where should we partner? Um, and, and that's really something that we have to work on. Yeah. All right. So that was anti-Semitism yeah. communally, you know, in, mm -hmm. with gratitude and, 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 and also in terms of dialogue, but also we have to start doing with education. Mm -hmm. um, there, the, there, there are these programs, a world of difference programs, no place for hate uh, that are, need to be part of our curriculum and a curriculum at an early age to have high school kids start talking about anti-Semitism and racism ain't gonna happen, all right? It's not gonna happen because it, it, it's, it's too late already. We need to be having these dialogues when we were in kindergarten and first grade and, 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 and knowing and appreciating differences and, and respecting that um, and acknowledging this and talking about diversity so that when we get into middle school and high school and college, we are able to communicate appropriately. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I will say that it, the education piece, it, everything moves at a much more glacial pace than I want to see it move. Mm -hmm. But it is moving because like in my, in my kids' school right here in Niskayuna, they are learning about each other's cultures and traditions in a way that is teaching them respect first and then about and then about how to learn about cultures and then moving on like one piece at a time but like the respect piece is what they learned first because uh, I'll never forget seeing my daughter when she was five and in kindergarten, sitting down with another five-year-old friend on a play date and saying, oh, at my house, we celebrate this holiday. Do you celebrate that holiday at your house too? And the holiday they were talking about was like St. Patrick's Day. So not one that, it, it, one that has some, you know, some, uh, some national component attached to it, but not one that you think of as being particularly divisive. But the kids have learned that you should, you should not assume anything about any one's culture or traditions and that everything has to have this very strong base layer of respect 
Oh, and also just before Jess jumps in, the, the author that you were thinking of that wrote the poem about first they came for the socialists and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a socialist, then the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I was Protestant, uh, that was Martin Niemöller. Thank you, Googled I knew it. it was, but I just drew a blank <laughs> for that second. Sorry, yeah, Jess, no worries. Yeah. Yeah, um, Google to the rescue. So just a moment of personal privilege. Um, mm -hmm. So my father's family was Catholic. I, I still have my maiden name, even though I'm married. Um, but we, we kind of knew that sometime way in the back, there was some conversion that happened from Judaism to Catholicism. We're just not sure when or how it happened. So when I would go to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., or I went to um, the Pincus Synagogue in Prague, and there are people with my last name in these Holocaust memorials who died in the Holocaust. And I'm like, I don't know if they're relatives of mine. I don't honestly know, but it gives you pause. And it also is like, I gotta make sure personally that this never happens again, because for all I know, these people were my family and they died. And so that's, for me, it's, it's about being like an ethical Christian in the world, but it's also personal, like, no, nobody should ever have to deal with that, so. Mm. Yeah, and it's it's this this stuff is real and it hurts mm -hmm. and it's painful, um, and it it it's those things that emerge that require us to do some self a soul search of sorts uh, about it, and it's also about our values, um, and this notion of assumptions of about others. Look. You know, if you want to, you know, pinpoint the rise of this round of anti-Semitism, you know, you could point fingers at people, you can look at things. One of the things that one of our colleagues in Schenectady, uh, Reverend um, Horace Sanders said, as we were dealing with um, 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 some of the, the Black Lives Matter stuff is, and I was showing some, some solidarity. He says, you know, there's gonna come a time when your involvement is going to have to hurt. That you have to really ask yourself um, about privilege and, and about sitting at the table. And where you start seeing this growth of white supremacy, it is that flip side of this, of like, wait a minute, you're asking me now to give up my privilege or, or my space to make room for another. And I don't want that. Can I keep it and make room for you? Even, you know, and the answer is the table isn't large enough. You know, it, it, that's just the nature of American society. We don't have that luxury. And mm -hmm. there's a great um, teaching, you know, that, uh, and, you know, just because we're a clergy, I should share a little religion, right? Um, it, it's that when God made the world, if God was omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent, how come there's troubles in the world? How come there's sorus in the world? And the answer is, according to this teaching, it's that God physically drew back perfection, making a space, and then took that, that, that space and hid it in special vessels and scattered them around the universe. That process is called simsum, the pulling back and making room for another. And the gathering of those vessels or those sparks are called tikkun alum, which is the repairing of a per once perfect world. 
God chose to make space for another, giving us a destiny, a reason to be. And the part of that is to be mitakne olam, world repair people, to gather up, to build fellowship, to build a sense of unity. So my religious teaching to my kids and to my congregation has been, we need to embrace him soon. It's essential for us to embrace him soon. And that's going to hurt. It's like a, a contraction in childbirth. It, it's going to be painful, but in order to, to bring forth something new, you need that opportunity. Wow. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank All right. you. No problem. Richly beautiful. Thank you. Gosh. Let's see. Gosh, it's it's you're such a fount of knowledge that it, it, it's hard to decide what even to ask you because it, because it, any anything is going to is going to spring forth you know ever flowing waters so to speak. But do you have a particular war story in the ministry you want to share with us? Um. Yeah. Um. I do, and actually, I thought about this one for a while. Um, and um, it's a very personal one. Yeah. Okay, first of all, I have to give you a quick background of how I deal with rabbinic stress. I am creating a TV show called Shirley's Temple. You have a podcast. I have this fictitious TV show called Shirley's Temple. And when the weird stuff happens, I'm like, oh, this is a character. Oh, yeah. this is this this is it. This is perfect. Oh, mm -hmm. please play out this ridiculous drama in my life and so that I can like write it down and 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 and, and spin it in such a way that it's a character uh, on my TV show. But every once in a while though, they become real pain painful. Mm -hmm. I've had a friend for over 40 years who we have been in touch with, he is a great soul. Big, big guy, larger than life physically and, and spiritually and intellectually. He's a corporate attorney down in DC. Um, and our, we've always been in touch, but in the last couple of years, Lou and I have really partnered as he faced pancreatic cancer. Mm. And His kids are younger than mine, um, but they're wonderful souls. And this past summer, Lou, as the, his pancreatic cancer really is, it's become a chronic illness and we don't know how long he has to live, decided to take his children away to, and his wife to the Hamptons and the house burnt down and two of his children died oh, no. uh, at the age of 19 and 21. So this has been the ministry war story of how do I grieve and help my friend grieve and answer the unexplainable in a, in a, in a wake to a family that is preparing themselves for even more grief. And this is a ministry, you know, when you ask about ministry war stories, this is one that has presented itself theologically emotionally, physically, um, with, with a test of my faith. 
how do I grope with the answers of this? And because it, you know, we live, part of the reason we have been successful in our ministries has been the fact that we have very good boundaries that we can step back from the painful one and take a bird's eye view and say, what is needed here? And then step back in. But this one, it's hard to step back. Mm. Um, and part of it is you can't answer the challenges here. Um, you know, when a person dies, the traditional re Jewish response in Hebrew is Baruch Dynamite, God is a righteous judge. You're not gonna know the answer but you trust in God as a Dayan, a, a judge of emet, of truth, that, they're, 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 that there's something there. The other part of it is really a struggle of, of understanding, you know, how you comfort and be comforted and trusting the memories of what was and, and being okay with grief in your place. Um, these are, these are important tools and to be able to say, look, I, I, I need to own this and I need to sit with this. Um, and I can't judge the fact that God has done this because that's not the way I believe that God operates. Um, I have to just embrace this. Mm. Wow. I'm yeah. so sorry to hear that happen to your friends and his family. That's yeah, that's absolutely crushing. Yeah. But you know, this these are the war stories. Look, we all have them. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, they in our worlds they happen more often than not because these are the people who knock on our doors. Um mm -hmm. and they they hurt us, you know, and we grieve with them. You know, that would, you know, conversation stopper, mic drop, you know, but because there is that sense of things. Yeah, totally. And in this, in this line of work, uh, you know, one thing that either, it either carries you through or it becomes kind of like a bowling ball that you have to carry around with you that, that doesn't help is is how you can deal with heartbreak and grief you either you find a way to to cope and you find a way to move on or you continue carrying heavy weights behind you to the point where it crushes you, you know? um there's other tools and yes. don't underestimate right there there's the power of 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 love um there's the power of humor um you know, this is an important part of how you know. I'm 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 thinking on the fly here, so I apologize for that. But but the, the, these there are these tools that we have. Look, I know that when I'm doing my job well, at a funeral intake, the the the, the tears become laughters. You know that we you know we, not so much that we're mourning their passing as we're celebrating them being alive. Mm -hmm. And that was the beauty of this funeral in, in, in Washington over the summer was that 
we were laughing toward the end of certain things. Yes, we miss these girls very much, but but there were things that we learned about who they were that we keep going, um, you know, and, and moments that I can emulate going forward that keeps them right here where I need to, in, in the mind's eye. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them, like, you know, she, the youngest one of three, you know, she always felt like her siblings were picking on her, you know, and uh, and the night before the uh, the night of the fire, um, Lou came out and, and, and we said, I just come on, give me a hug, you know, we all love you, you know. And, and I find that with my daughter, who's my youngest, that I, I repeat that story and I, I just, you know, I just give her a hug. When our son got married, my son got married a couple of weeks ago. I just needed to give her that hug because I knew that was something that I, I, brought me to that space and time and a flourishing moment that I need to remember that I'm alive. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's powerful. Yes. Like, so there's sometimes when we're kind of standing like Job in the face of that great mystery. And having to say, you know, God, I will let you do what you have to do because it's beyond me. That's why I have to applaud Christianity. You have this notion of mystery that we don't have. Uh, no, no, we, we're, we're, even the, the hardest part of, of liberal Judaism is we're based on rational, scientific, logical thought. In German, Wissenschaft der Judentum. This real, you know, and, and, you know, the world to come and resurrection. Oh, please, we, you know, from liberal Judaism, that's be gone with it. It, it has no place for us. Um, um, but what, what I, you know, there's a sense of sitting with the mystery with a capital M that is a huge theological thing within Christian circles that as a Jew, I, I leaves me yearning for uh, that type of ability to be. Um, and I think that's one of the things that the Hasidic masters have been really good at um, is that God is everywhere, including in, 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 the, in, in the, the worst possible moments. Yeah. And so we sit with it. Yeah. And, and trust me and Jess, when we tell you, we struggle with actually being comfortable with the mystery because there's no comfort. <laughs> yeah. No, one of, uh, one of the Achilles oh, heels. On, uh, no, we, we love that. It, I personally love that mysterious element. One of the Achilles heels of Christianity is that we want to come up with an official answer trademark to every question that there is so that there can be no questions that don't have exact answers. Right. Yeah. Uh. And the thing is, is like, you know, people say God works in mysterious ways is like a comforting thing, but to me, it's just as often a curse. <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, well, you know, it's like, it's like there's certain lines that you just don't say, you know, when a young parent loses a child, you can have another, you know, or, you know, that type of thing. Um, you know, the, these, these things you go, no, this is, that's not the purpose of this. They, yeah, you not say that ever. 
Yeah, literally never to anyone. Yeah. Um, you know, we struggle with this thing. Um, you know, there's a thing called bituel chayesh, is this nullifying of the being to transcend the mortal span to be able to to do things, uh, to tr understand um, that we are more than this 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 life that's there. Um, you know, my mom, my mom was a paraplegic at the age of, of 13. And, you know, when she closed her eyes and dreamed, she always saw herself as moving and dancing. She was always active and alive. Um, and later on in life, um, as she got older and, you know, she developed vascular problems and they amputated legs and, and then mm. she developed breast cancer and they, they had, had to have a mastectomy. Um, <laughs> the hardest one for her though was, was when they, she lost, um, you know, when they had, she get dentures, she's like, for some reason, that was the most painful of them all emotionally. But, um, mm. but one of the things that she used to say is they could chip away more and more at me, but I have never felt more and more whole. Mm. And I always used to love that type of thing. And now I don't know whether that was a mamaism, where mom used to say it in order to reassure her sons that we, you know, don't worry about it. I'm I'm fine. You know, it's it's just it's not not who I am. It's it's just a a part of the vessel. Um, you know, it's an important part. Yeah. All right. Yeah, on that note, Matt, what excites you in this life right now? What makes you feel excited? You. The fellowship that I have with others that were there. Like, you know, we had the Schenectady Clergy Against Hate meeting yesterday, and it was mm -hmm. this presence of others. Um, then we went over and celebrated with, 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 with some one of our Lutheran colleagues um, about, mm -hmm. you know, opening up this food pantry. And um, it was just this learning and sharing that was so beautiful. Um, yeah. I got to set the glog on fire. You go Google <laughs> it, people, you'll figure that out. It, I guess it's some sort of uh, uh, spiced wine that you kind of like put brandy over and light up a little bit. But it was really cool. Um, but it was yeah. just this learning and engaging in and, and, and just being excited about being alive and having someone who can take me by the hand and say, come share life with me. Um, that's the exciting part about it, that I, I read Torah in, with, in partnership with, uh, in Chavruta, with studying with others, and I see things that have been there for centuries that I never saw before. That's an important tool. These are great things in our lives. Um, and for my life, it's, it's that excitement. You know, mm. there was nothing. The best symbol of this lately was that when my son got married to his long-term girlfriend, um, my son's 29. He met his wife at the age of 10 uh, mm. and started dating her at 18, you know, and they've been living together for seven years. You know, this was a beautiful moment, even though we all knew it was eventually going to happen. But when we were standing there i did not officiate i got to be dad and the best part oh. was i was able to have my wife was in front of me uh, and she leaned back into me and i was able to put my hands on her shoulders 
and and there was a sense of yehud of union of, of like this was a moment we were sharing together and what excites me is that sense of being able to have union or yehud on a regular basis that's so beautiful so thank you of course matt if there's if there's one thing that you want the whole world to know about god what would that one thing be god is there do not give up on connecting um just change your you know we see the world through god focals you know these lenses that if we change between the three of us we would our glasses we would see the world differently and we may not see it mm -hmm. all you gotta <laughs> find something that works for you and it keeps changing and evolving and for me you know god is there and i yearn each moment of each day um, to be in partnership or in relationship with God, with gratitude. And it's not, and so therefore I don't get angry. I'm more curious about where I am in relationship to it, to that relationship with God. Mm. That's you. so precious. Thank you so much, Matt. So reminds me of Psalms 27. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life. Mm -hmm. To yeah. gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. So mm -hmm. so that, by the way, that is a psalm that we chant every, well, in traditional Judaism, you would chant it every day in the month leading up to the high holy days, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Sha'alti, you know, so it to me that is really one of the most powerful psalms. And there's this wonderful book by Rabbi Deborah Robbins, who basically has us meditating on the this psalm. So what she does every day um, is she gives us uh, like a line from the psalm, and then she'll come up with a poem or an activity, and we just kind of sit with it and let we'll see how the words move us. It's really a great activity, and and that's such a great psalm. Yeah, it is. But opening your heart with Psalm twenty-seven. Yep, Deborah Robbins. Oh, it's good. I'll have to pick up a copy. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, we Natalie, love book I got recommendations. A bunch of my office, you can come take a look at it first in my place. <laughs> but I'm in oh, Buffalo. So it's going to be a long drive. Yeah, <laughs> oh, just start digging the snow away now. <laughs> <laughs> oh matt thank you so so much for oh, giving I'm us your time to be a for part this. of this thank you so much yeah you're so welcome peace and love to you and everything that you do thank you and gratitude to you and peace and love to you and your families and i look forward jessica to seeing you in person and and, and mm -hmm. being able to celebrate life with you and natalie Absolutely. someday we're going to get that coffee again <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. All right, so, take care. Peace and love. Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers is produced by Natalie Bowerman, Emily Hugie, and Jessica Glazer.